Brian, we got Sandhya on the line here. What do you want to ask her? What do we do afterwards and how do we scale it hypothetically up to having a billion dollars under asset management? Yeah, I would just break that down into smaller tasks, right? Anything that seems like a big task. If I have to have a billion in assets in five years, usually it's not really a linear function. Usually the first few deals are the slowest and then it goes up exponentially. Mm -hmm. So I would say that you figure out what are the biggest roadblocks and what are the biggest things that you can do yourself. So if I wanted a billion dollars in assets in five years, mm-hmm. I would want to get to at least a hundred million in my first 18 months or so. And so how do I get there? What can I offer? What can somebody else do? So figure out your partnerships, your roadblocks, and then find people with complementary skills so that your weakness is covered by their strengths. This is the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. And this podcast is designed for the aspiring apartment investor and literally gives them the opportunity to ask the questions that will help them get to the next level. So if you're an aspiring apartment investor, this podcast is for you. Now, this podcast is brought to you by the Tribe of Titans Multifamily Educational Community. It's your one-stop shop for learning how to succeed at apartment investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. I'm very excited for today's show. We have Sandhya Sashadri on with us today, who is a second-time podcast guest coming on as our experienced investor again, and then Brian Robles as our aspiring investor. So guys, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Awesome. So Sandhya, you're going to be up first. And anybody, if you want to go back and listen to her previous episode, it was episode number 37, released in September of 2020. So we have a lot of catching up to do. Sandhya, tell us a little bit about yourself and how things have gone since, I don't know, about September 2020. A lot of things have happened since then. We were in the middle of COVID back then. A lot of things have opened up since then, which is great. I have acquired a few more properties in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is my primary market. My former experience as an engineer helps me with underwriting and project management, which is all essential. And uh, my market is still Dallas-Fort Worth. I've acquired about seven more properties since we last chatted. And I've still continued to invest passively with a lot of my retirement funds from my previous W-2. So it's been great. Uh, There have, of course, been a few nice challenges with all that the Fed has been up to in the past year, but I'm still very excited to be in this business. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a lot of challenges. I mean, it's like they they greased things, you know, a couple of years ago and made things like super, super easy. And now it's, you know, just the opposite. So Dallas-Fort Worth, tell, tell me why you like Dallas-Fort Worth. Well, I moved here a long time ago, 32 mm-hmm. years ago, and this is the market I know best. Mm-hmm. So that's a big one is being, yeah. you know, investing in your own backyard because mm-hmm. I don't have to underwrite 200 deals. As soon as I get an address, I know if I'm interested in the location or not. But secondly, it's got all the major um, factors we look for, which is mm-hmm. in a landlord friendly state, diversity yep. of jobs. Huge mm-hmm. population and in economic growth. Every week, every day almost, I hear about yet another company relocating to this area or expanding yep. in this area. So it's got all the right numbers in that sense. The other thing is, of course, any property you look at, you always want to find the ones where the rents are far below market rents because mm-hmm. that's your primary bread and butter for any deal. Yep. And I'm able to still find a lot of value add deals, which is what I do. 
there's something to be said about investing in your backyard. And I, I know there's there's a lot of people looking to go from wherever they're at in the nation to Dallas to invest because of the dy- dynamics there. And you're you're very fortunate to to actually live there. Truth said, I think anybody who's interested in in, in that market could actually move there themselves. But anyway, a lot, a lot of goodness there. Let's talk a little bit about what you did before coming into multifamily, because I know you had a really, really solid career prior to that. Yeah, this is, I would say, my third gig. Like most Asian geeks, I had strong math skills. So I got an engineering degree, got a corporate job right here in Dallas, where I went to college at SMU and then got into a nice job doing technical work first. And then I realized all the business types were making all the decisions Mm -hmm. and they were telling me what to do. And I had to understand how they do their financial analysis, market analysis, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So my company was kind enough to pay for me to get a part-time MBA. That's where I got all my investment knowledge and formed a nice network with an investor club, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that's where I learned to invest in the stock market. So Mm -hmm. I went full-time into the stock market after my corporate job once I had children Mm -hmm. because I wanted to be very involved in raising my children, et cetera. So a couple of hours a day of trading was enough. And then the rest of the day, I was available for my kiddos. Mm -hmm. And that worked really well until I was actually quite successful Mm -hmm. as a stock market investor. And now I was like, we're paying too much in taxes because my husband had the W-2 and I was looking for real estate. I was trying to get involved in real estate found that every time I analyzed a single family rental in the area, the margins just weren't big enough for me to justify signing a loan and dealing with our favorite four T's, tenants, toilets, trash, and termites. So I just didn't want to get that phone call, you know, of a leaky toilet on Thanksgiving day kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. So I shied away from single family. And then a friend told me about multifamily and I attended a weekend event by my mentor, Brad Sumrock, and I was sold. I was like, this is yeah. This is exactly what I want to do. This is the kind of asset management, project management I've already got the experience doing. And this is my local market seems to be really great for it. So why not? And so I hopped into it about four years ago mm-hmm. and started by investing passively with my mm-hmm. retirement money from my previous W-2 to get to know sponsors, to get to know how to underwrite. And I use the analogy of a plane ride. You know, first you want to be passenger on a plane, which yep. is what's passive investing. And then you want to be a co-pilot and then a pilot. And so that's exactly what my what I did in my first yeah. deal. I joined experienced partners who were out of state and I could add value to them by being the local expert in boots on the ground. And when COVID hit, that was particularly handy. And I learned a whole bunch of asset management. So mm-hmm. I would say I was a co-pilot there. And then now I'm the lead pilot and I bring on other co-pilots and it's been great. And I still continue to invest passively. So that's a summary of my real estate journey today. I agree. There's a lot of benefits coming in as an LP first, if you have the means to do it, obviously, but mm-hmm. a lot a lot of benefits to coming in as an LP. And I like the analogy with the pilots. You know, I, I flew back from you know Louisville, Kentucky and spent a little bit of time on planes, but I like that, you know, be a passenger first, move to co-pilot and then move to you know, the pilot seat. So if you don't mind, let's just talk about that as far as your journey goes. You know, you talked about investing passively first. Tell us how you got into, you know, syndications as your co as the co-pilot using your own words. And then, you know, how that's changed now that you are the actual pilot. Having invested passively, I already knew what I liked about various sponsors because I, Mm -hmm. you know, put my retirement money across several different deals, many of which were in the Dallas area that I visited, that Mm -hmm. I spoke with the sponsors, that I said, please let me know if you're doing a major CapEx project that's very interesting to me. I'll show up, et cetera. So I was trying to be a useful and an actively involved Mm -hmm. passive investor. 
And that's where within this mentoring program is where I met my future partners. They did not need me at all. They were experienced. Mm -hmm. They had done this before, but they had no presence in Texas and Dallas. And I said, I could be so useful to you. So if you want to get your first deal, always when it involves other people's money, I would say Mm -hmm. go with somebody else who has the experience so you don't make costly mistakes when it involves other people's hard-earned money. That's number one. And the second thing is, um, like being a co-pilot, in case there's a lot of turbulence, you've got somebody else to help you, you know, without mm-hmm. uh, you getting into a panic mode. And then how can you add value to them so that they take you on? Right. What do you have in your toolbox that's of value to somebody? And mm-hmm. find a list. So if I try to go with other local partners, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be as useful to them as I was to somebody who's out of state who would have to travel each time to check on the mm-hmm. property. And I could be their eyes and ears. I could FaceTime them literally while I'm speaking to a contractor or I'm on site. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different ways that you could be useful. So figure out how you can be adding Mm -hmm. value and why somebody should partner with you. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. And now that you're in the lead syndicator role or the pilot role, you know, Mm -hmm. I won't put words in your mouth, but the pilot Mm -hmm. role. Now, what does that look like for you? I love finding deals because, again, I'm in the local market. I have four brokers who literally live in my neighborhood. And so they know my little box and my criteria. So if something Mm -hmm. comes along that fits, you know, now I'm going to a minimum of at least 150 doors. I used in the past, you know, accept 70, 80 doors also to get my foot in the door. So again, the larger you scale, you can do fewer deals. So figure out your criteria. That's what I say first. And so I specify the type of deal I want, the price per door, certain locations. And I say, you know, don't even bother if it's in these locations, right? So Mm -hmm. I've done all of that. and then. I love to underwrite. So even if a partner underwrites it and brings me a deal, I have to independently underwrite it. And then because the deals are in Dallas, another thing I like to do is I like to do my own drive-bys and comp analysis. So I visit all the comparative properties if I'm serious, right? Mm-hmm. Like I said, I don't have to screen 200 deals to find one. I already know based on location, price per door, et cetera. Yeah. So a brief drive-by will give me that information. And then I spend about half to one full day just driving and visiting the comps to drill down. I sit in the leasing offices, never go in the beginning of the month, but Mm -hmm. I sit there and I do my own questions, my analysis. I take Starbucks gift cards to thank the leasing people for spending time with me, et cetera. And then I drill down. So now I really know how does my subject property differentiate? Mm -hmm. How is it better or worse? And what are some you know, opportunities available. So then you take all that, you get a budget from a PM company and you underwrite the deals and that's how you get ready to make offers. So once that's done, I need to figure out who can bring me the capital as well, right? Before you make offers, it's always a good idea to figure out your capital stack. How much can I raise? How much can my partners raise? Do we need to bring anybody else? Because Mm -hmm. certainty of closing is so important now more than ever. And so that's how you make a strong impression and build your reputation with brokers. So do not be scrambling for capital last minute, you know, and there's a whole bunch of things you could talk on that topic. Once you do that asset management, right, that's the bulk of the work. So from Mm -hmm. when the deal closes for the next three, four five years, you know, that hold period, you've got to make the business plan come to life. So having that connection with a PM company, making sure the property management company believes in your business plan. Yes, you do this, you will get this in your rent. Or Mm -hmm. yes, this source of other income, is possible in this property. So we recently did a big exterior paint. This property looked rather hideous with red colored exterior paint. And I love red. No, not for a part. Yeah. 
not this stop sign red color plastered over all the buildings, right? <laughs> so we went with our favorite theme colors of the Dallas Cowboys. No, I don't want to talk about the game. But, um, you know, our navy, silver, gray, and white color is really popular. And so a lot of people in my apartments will be walking around with Dallas Cowboys here. So we went with those colors because, again, it's a proven color scheme. I don't have to think about it. And, yes, if you refresh the exterior look, your property will be considered an ISO property and Mm -hmm. get more rent. That was something validated by a PM company who was running the property next door. Mm -hmm. So that's very important is to make sure Whoever you pick as your property management company has a local presence already in that submarket. That's very important. Well, I mean, you threw out a ton of gems there, you know, and I had a hard time keeping track. But, you know, one thing that I do want to, to highlight is I have a lot of calls with people who are interested in learning how to do this. And I ask them what markets are they focused on? And sometimes I hear, uh, well, the markets I'm looking at are Florida, Texas, and Oklahoma, you know, and I'm scratching (laughs) my head thinking there are a lot of markets in those three states, you know, but you're focusing on one. And what I'd like to point out is all you need is an address. You said that up to the beginning, and I appreciate you saying that all you need is an address and you know whether it's something you want or not. And that's because mm-hmm. you know your market better than a lot of other people do. You know you know it mm-hmm. so well that all you need is an address, you know? And I love how you say you're, you're spending several hours, you know, getting to know the neighborhood, sitting down with leasing agents. And I think your, your LinkedIn post from today or late last week actually talked about secret shopping properties too. So mm-hmm. that's something that comes up a lot when I'm talking with aspiring investors, but there is a lot of, goodness that comes out of focusing on one market, then, oh, you know what? I'm looking in Florida. I'm looking in Texas and, you know, pick another state, you know, so appreciate that. So another thing, and let's dial down on, on one of the properties you guys done. You mentioned the the paint job, but let, let's pick a property and talk a little more in detail about, you know, how the, the project has worked, what, what it was supposed to be. And yeah, just go from there. So we can talk about this specific property where I refer to the paint job. It's located in a submarket called Carrollton, which mm-hmm. is a great location. And actually, when I first moved to the United States uh, over three decades ago, I stayed within two miles of that location. Mm-hmm. So I know that area really, really well. Like I know all the streets, yeah. I know how it's evolved, and it's within a 15 minute drive of my house. So it's, again, local market knowledge made me realize, oh, yes. it's Carrollton, I'm going to go after it. I didn't need to think. And so like, boom, as soon as you see the listing or the, actually a lot of brokers now send me the listings even before they officially listed. They say, are you Mm -hmm. interested? Like, yes, I'm interested. And then, you know, within two days, I'm like there, can I go see the property, et cetera. So that's very important for you to have that local market knowledge so that you can pounce, you know, when you know you found your target. So that property. If if I can, going back to my last, you know, what, what I said about your comments, Having that focus gets you those relationships. If you're dealing with, once again, Texas and Florida, and you have like lots of markets on your your plate, you're never going to get those calls from the brokers, my opinion. Mm -hmm. Anyway, sorry for interrupting. Go ahead. No, perfect. Perfect. Important. If your broker knows your little box and your criteria and you've already acquired properties in the area or you're partnered with someone who does, then you're much more likely to get awarded those deals. So that's very important. So I got to tour the property before the general listing of people Mm -hmm. could tour it. And so me and my partners were able to make an offer and get it under contract before it ever went to the local market and, you know, broadcast to everybody else. Because again, I knew the price they wanted. I knew how I could get there. 
And mm-hmm. my local knowledge, again, I, I shopped every one of the other properties, not even secretly. I actually go mm-hmm. sit down at the leasing office and tell them, hey, I represent a group. We're by, interested in buying properties here. We'd like to know more about you. And I've already done my homework from looking at CoStar. So I know the you know property management company, et cetera, what they're charging. And so mm-hmm. I have a specific list of questions by property as to why I want to know more about this amenity here versus yep. there. And that knowledge really helps you. So in this property, we got it under contract. We did our due diligence. We knew there'd be deferred maintenance. It was an older property. And so your purpose in due diligence is to bring out all the trades so that you get a thorough listing of all your deferred maintenance that you must do, as well as the potential for interior. So the property management company was already on board with us. They came along. They looked inside. And so we all now have a nicely, finely refined mm-hmm. uh, business plan that we're all in agreement on. And that's so important. And along with that, all the trades have already told you, this is what mm-hmm. it'll cost. They know all the materials that we need for it. So you can line all that up so that day one, you're ready to sort of execute your CapEx plan. Yeah. One unique thing that happened with that property was that we were able to get in on an encore rebate. We closed this property in a November of 2021. And so if we installed some air conditioners before the end of the year, we could get it at a huge discount. I think we paid like uh, less than $1,000 per air conditioner installed wow. compared wow. to 3500 to yeah. 4000 But we yeah. had to execute it right away. So we had to come up and prepay certain things, sign certain contracts, and all of the install had to happen by that timeline. Mm-hmm. But that was a huge deal for Dallas, for Texas, because our summers are really hot. Mm-hmm. So saving that kind of money was definitely worth it because it's not just the cost, but it's also the headaches for your maintenance people. So now they could be serving um, tenants in another way with other problems and not have to ever worry about AC issues. So you want to do things like that. We knew we were going to do the exterior paint. We just hated that stop sign red color. Mm -hmm. So that was on our list. We already had the painter contractor and all that figured out. We knew what it was going to cost us to do the exterior paint. And then what we did not know was how much extra framing we'd have to do, depending on the damage they found underneath. So that definitely went a little bit over budget and we had to deal with that. So not everything goes smoothly or perfectly. The project certainly didn't finish in time. It dragged out because of all the weather delays, et cetera. So it kind of stretched itself. It took about four and a half months uh, Mm -hmm. to complete everything. And then we were ready to rebrand it with new signage. And so now it was a new look, new feel. Everybody loved it. The existing residents renewed. Yep. There were some residents who had lived in, you know, who had moved out of this property. And then they came back seeing how visually yep. nicer it is. We updated the leasing office again because its interiors were also this, you know, stop sign red color that we updated. Mm. Yep. So a lot of the CapEx projects have done really well. So what has not done so well? Because, you know, not everything goes perfectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, some projects cost us more money. And secondly, our interest rates went up because we signed up for a bridge loan and our mortgage payment went up significantly. Mm -hmm. So the great thing is because of this fantastic location, all the things within our control, right, which is your revenue and your NOI, your operating expenses, they're doing very well. They were ahead of what we had projected. So Mm -hmm. by month eight, month nine, we were well into year two numbers, but it still got us with this mortgage. So we're not in trouble with the lender because we're able to have a high enough NOI that it's plenty to pay for the mortgage. Of course, our rate cap insurance has already Mm -hmm. kicked in because nobody anticipated such steep interest rate increases. And so the only, shall we say, not so great thing is that our distributions are far less than what we had projected Mm -hmm. because the mortgage company now is taking Yeah, exactly, exactly. But 
if we hold on, we're not in any kind of a distress mm-hmm. in that sense of, you know, we can still keep the property very much afloat. Yes. And we just have to hold for another year, year and a half and see what it looks like to refi ourselves. Yeah. And I appreciate you actually talking about that because a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, come yep. on podcasts and they tell you roses and everything. And I mean, yep. you guys put a lot of work into it. And mm-hmm. it's something that, that a lot of people aren't talking about specifically is, you know, what happens to deals when, mm-hmm. you know, with those variable rates. And fortunately, number yep. one, you have rate cap insurance, which is something that I wouldn't do a variable rate loan without. Number two, you guys added enough value and your projections were conservative enough that you've got room to take care of it. And number three, you're just not distributing as much, you know, so mm-hmm. so instead of distributing money, the lenders are getting that money, you know, so yes. that's really the difference here is mm-hmm. you guys. And the fourth thing that I'll mention is something that you said exactly. And it's the beauty of real estate. It's just that buy real estate and wait concept. Yes. It's Okay. You know, right now is not a great time to sell. We're paying our bills. We're paying our mortgage. Let's just hold on and mm-hmm. we'll be fine. So yeah, love it. we're just 14 minutes, uh, 14 months since we acquired it. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a five year hold period. So yep. yeah, investors know that this is illiquid and they got to be patient. And, you know, if you buy real estate and wait, you know, the opportunity is going to be there. Absolutely. When we have increased its value, and at that time, we'll see if it makes sense to refi and hold on to it or actually yep. sell it. But- yep. A lot of options there. Mm-hmm. Question, and shifting gears slightly here, what is your big burning why? What's your motivation for what you're doing? So on the big picture, as far as helping others, there's a motivation, and then there's a the very selfish motivation. Yep. So the big picture is that when I moved to this country, you know, I also lived in an apartment, <laughs> and I went to a private college, SMU, with mm-hmm. a very fancy neighborhood, Highland Park of Dallas, yep. and I saw the beautiful homes and the lives they lived, et cetera. And I want to bring that neighborhood feel back to these apartments. I feel like the neighborhood cul-de-sac feel where you build a community where everybody watches out for each other, et cetera, is what I want to build in these communities, which is why I do a lot of the community building activities. And uh, I focus a lot more of my bonuses and incentives for staff on renewals rather Mm -hmm. than new leases, because retaining the right tenants, taking care of them, making that single mom feel safe living in my apartments, uh, you know, with two kids is important. The very selfish reason is as an Asian geek, I have two uh, children who are bright in their own ways. Mm -hmm. And I have one who has reached cruising altitude and she's going to be fine on her own. Mm -hmm. But my second child may not want to go the traditional path to college, W2, et cetera. And I really want to have a backup plan for him if he wants to get in to have rental income from real estate. And to learn this business, work alongside with me and at some point take over. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And you use the word Asian geek a couple of times. So, you know, it's, it sounds like a term you've embraced. <laughs> yes. I love my math. I love my spreadsheets and yeah. I'm okay with that. You know, I've, I've got two <laughs> degrees in math, you know, I'm mm-hmm. you know, so I, I think, you know, the geek word applies to me as well, but okay. I, I can nerd out on spreadsheets all day long, you know? Yes. Uh, all right. So last question and what's next for you? I hope to slowly Mm-hmm. Uh, acquire the right properties at good value and increase. So I want to do larger and fewer deals, not mm-hmm. try to acquire 10 properties, but rather have two properties, maybe larger that I can babysit and manage really well. Cause I enjoy the asset management aspect of it too. And yep. returning value to my investors instead of being scattered in 10 different places. Yep. You know, and 
I, I'll, I'll be honest, there's, there's a lot of wisdom to that. Having one complex with 200 units is so much easier to manage than 10, 20 unit complexes, you know, and mm-hmm. as a syndicator, we, we are essentially paid by that AUM, that mm-hmm. assets under management number determines how much we get as syndicators more than anything else, more than unit counts. So you're basically going for larger, more quality, and it's less work for you. And it's actually mm-hmm. a lot more stable or returns for the investor. So I love it. So that's one thing. And then on the other side is I've always mm-hmm. wanted to write. And I've always wanted to write a book. And that was a very, very scary prospect for me. So I decided to join a group. And so we have each written one chapter of a book. And it's uh, termed Next Level Your Life. Mm -hmm. And so if you do a search for Next Level on Amazon, you will find that book. And uh, I've written a chapter. So if you want to learn more about me and some really amazing, inspiring folks like Tom Ziegler, Mm-hmm. And amazing authors like that, I would highly recommend, of course, to purchase this book on Amazon. All right. And I'm going to put a link to that book in the show notes. So before we hop off, you know, we got to make sure that I got the right link and everything else. So, all right. That said, we're going to shift gears again. We got Brian Robles on the line. And uh, there we go. Brian, first of all, love your first name. Second of all, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. First, I um, just want to say thank you real quick to um, Sadia. Yeah. Absolutely. Knowledge bombs, knowledge bombs. I do have some questions I'd like to circle around too, but I'd like to introduce myself. Um, yeah, like please do. Brian, the only difference is that he spells it with an I and I spell it with a Y. So Yeah. I mean, if I, if, if I were to go back to grade school, we'd you know discuss which one is better. But uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I'm at 27 years old. About seven years ago or so, I kind of came across the book, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Since then, you know, I've been a musician for as, as long as I can remember playing tuba and doing that in regional Mexican music, as well as concert music. And it really shifted my mindset because, you know, as a musician, we, we're, we're trading our time, you know, for money. And then at a certain point, you you realize that you can only do so much as one singular person. You could only make so much returns. So that's what really shifted me into, you know, kind of that investor mindset and really, really got me into that. Me, humbly, uh, we come from humble backgrounds. My mother was an immigrant. My father was an immigrant. Um, so that makes me first generation. My big burning why would be first mm-hmm. to help provide for them. Let them know that, you know, all their sacrifice has has been worth it. Second, and it's something that I really love to share, to be completely honest, is that I would love to be able to fund uh, mm-hmm. a 501c3 nonprofit yep. organization that's able to impact 1 million people in over 20 countries by just showing them that it's possible to be the best person you could be physically, wow. mentally, spiritually, and emotionally, and uh, financially. Over this entire time, that's just kind of what I've been working on. That's my background. That's where I come from. And just finding a vehicle to get me there. This is a great vehicle for that, you know, so very, very much appreciated. You know, you you pretty much already answered your big burning why question as well. But is there anything you want to add to what you said about your big burning why? I just I want to mention that, you know, for, for a very long time, you know, um, you they say you're 
the people who you hang around with really, really affects, you know, your, your outcome in, in life. And, you know, for a very long time, you don't, you don't really think about it. You know, you just kind of go about, you know, like, Oh, this is fun. This is a lot yeah. of fun. I love this. And it's not until you meet someone or you read something that really changes, really changes your mindset. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what's really changed my trajectory. You know, I've been sober since 2019, you know, and I just, I'm looking to make an impact in my life and all those around me. So, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. Now we get to my favorite part of the podcast. Brian, we got Sandia on the line here. What do you want to ask her? I did a little bit of research on your bio. I know you do a lot of speaking engagements. So what pulled you into speaking? Why do you love it so much? And how does one become a speaker? I have never been afraid of public speaking. So right from when I was a child through grade school, et cetera, that's a fear I've not had. And I think the first time it was in a podcast three years ago, actually, it was Whitney Sewell. He was so kind. I had no idea what he was and his uh, yep. uh, expertise, et cetera. And I just met him and he's like, you have an interesting story. You should come on my podcast kind of thing. Yeah. And that's where it started. And then once you do a few of these, other people call you. So you mm-hmm. no longer have to seek them out. And yeah. I think I enjoy sharing my story because the first few times I got a lot of feedback that what I said was useful mm-hmm. and it helped somebody else. And nowadays, that's how I learn as well is by listening to podcasts more than actually reading, sitting down and reading a book. It's either an audible or a podcast. So I think mm-hmm. to stay current with the world, that's a really good way to listen and learn. And that's my media. So if I have something to give back, and the host invites me and says I can be useful to their audience. Yeah. I love sharing my lessons learned to help collapse other people's time frames, yeah. and also to give them a very realistic perspective of what it is. It's not all, you know, roses and sunshine and perfect all the time. Mm-hmm. And for them to realize that, no, this is not an easy business, but if you stay consistent and you have the right priorities, which is in my case, Take care of your residents, take care of your investors. Mm -hmm. And if every decision you make is based on that, everything else will fall in line. So it's also giving people that helping hand and courage to jump and invest into something else like real estate. Like I needed others to help me get into this business. So I want to help others get into this business and realize that it's not just about making money. You can actually improve lives, impact apartments and There's a whole bunch of fun activities I do at my properties that brings it all together. So to share that, I think, is my purpose. Mm -hmm. And that's a big piece of what I do. I think as a mom, I also homeschooled my son for two years. So the whole educator and needing to share knowledge, not to keep those secrets, because I want you to avoid the mistakes I made. I think that's my purpose. Yeah. yeah. And I've, I've wow. seen you on some pretty big stages. I mean, the, the conference we were at last weekend, you were one of the speakers and, you know, I was at some rock a year, year and a half ago, and you were one of the speakers there too. So, you know, congratulations on all your success and, you know, being on those big stages. Thank you. Yeah. I think it's about being relatable and helping, especially people who haven't done this before, come across and take that leap so mm-hmm. that they can collapse timeframes again, like I said before, to be successful faster, not wait 10 years to do this. You could do it in a year or two. Yep, absolutely. All right. I love that. I love that. And just continue on from there, a couple of short questions and then a little bit of longer question. And the first short question, what are the, some of the podcasts that you're listening to right now? I love listening to podcasts when I'm driving. So I like Hunter Thompson's uh, 
cash flow uh, podcast. And then I also like Rod Cleave's lifetime cash flow podcast. Mm-hmm. I like Whitney Sewell. I like the podcast uh, by a lot of other uh, smaller syndicators. Eileen mm-hmm. Pack has one. I forget the name exactly of her show. I oh. like the one by Sujata. I like, of course, Brian's yeah. because again, it gives you a newbie and an experienced person's perspective and the questions change each time. So it's always interesting and fun. So sometimes I have a three-hour drive to go see my daughter in college. And so I post a variety of these podcasts. I think it depends on what you want to learn. The really bigger motivational ones also, you know, you can never get tired of listening to uh, Jesse Itzler, Ed Milet, et cetera, kind of people. So when I need that inspiration, when I'm down, I go back and re-listen to some of their episodes because that's really helpful. I'm not tired. I feel outstanding, right? Those are some of Jesse Itzler's words. And so sometimes I need to hear that again uh, when I'm feeling down or exhausted. So it just uh, depends on a variety. And I can give you, uh, email you a list of podcasts as well, in addition to what I've already mentioned. I actually haven't listened to a lot of multifamily podcasts recently. And I think, you know, Granted, I record, you know, three episodes like this a week. So I I guess this is my podcast fix, but... (laughs) You know, I, I've got uh, I, I've got a church one that I listen to, a, a macroeconomic one that I listen to, Hal Elrod's podcast, podcast, and then Masters of Scale from the LinkedIn founder. Which so th- those are the four on my on my rotation, and it's it, it's really the, the things that I for me it's the things that I need right now. You know, more than anything mm-hmm. else. You know, scaling is is a big topic right now, and so that's one of the podcasts I listen to. Hal Elrod mindset and routines. You know, and that that's one thing that. I'm definitely working on. So that's how I choose it. And it's, it's, it's the things that I'm working on. Wow, wow. I love that. I love that. And I've recently been getting a little bit more into macroeconomics and I love that. And I love how you're tying into the, you know, just the whole supply and demand. It's, they're very simple concepts, you know, mm-hmm. they, they get into very detailed oriented and think all these kinds of things, but I think it's just keeping it simple and applying it to what we're doing or whatever business you're doing. I think that's, that's really cool. But yeah. So another question that I did have, you mentioned scaling, and this is one of the questions that I, I have, I've had for a while is, you know, as an aspiring investor, for a long time, we're thinking, okay, let's get this, let's get this deal, let's get it going, let's get it rolling, let's get it rolling. But my biggest question is, what do we do afterwards and how do we scale it hypothetically up to having a billion dollars under asset management? Yeah, I would just break that down into smaller tasks, right? Anything that seems like a big task. If I have to have a billion in assets in five years, usually it's not really a linear function. Usually the first few deals are the slowest and then it goes up exponentially. Mm -hmm. So I would say that you figure out what are the biggest roadblocks and what are the biggest things that you can do yourself. So if I wanted a billion dollars in assets in five years, Mm -hmm. I would want to get to at least a hundred million in my first 18 months or so. And so how do I get there? What can I offer? What can somebody else do? So figure out your partnerships, your roadblocks, and then find people with complementary skills so that your weakness is covered by their strengths. Usually capital is always a roadblock. So how are you going to get to that? So if you wanted to acquire a $50 million property, nowadays you have to raise even 25 to 30 million of that yourself. So start first with a smaller property, figure out what works and what doesn't in the capital raising world, partner with people whose strength is raising capital if that is your weakness. So you cover the other basis. So you get your first deal that's maybe only 10 million. Your next deal is 20 million and so on. And each time you figure out, oh, this capital partner is ideal for this. Um, I have a strong relationship with this broker so I can get this deal awarded, et cetera. So break it down into those steps. 
And once you get to the 100 or $200 million worth of assets under management, the rest of it is just repeat, rinse and repeat. But like I said, scale by doing larger and fewer deals to get to that $1 billion number. Yeah. I would add, I mean, the same thing. And this, this is something, once again, I've been looking into uh, in the last couple of days or a couple of weeks is, you know, look for consultants, look for coaches that can help you get there as well. I mean, there's a lot of coaches in the beginning stages of the industry, in the beginning stages of, of multifamily that can get you to pass that first hump. But, you know, scaling is a whole different, you know, whole different thing. You, know, you have to have the right people around you, the right procedures and processes. I would say, you know, at some point, you know, if you want to get to that billion dollar asset management, in addition to everything Sandia said, if you want to get to that point, at some point, you know, maybe bring in somebody to help you scale, make sure your internal systems and procedures. With the former partnership I was in, we hit our limit because we did not have you know, really well, you know, well-designed and fine-tuned procedures. And we hit our scaling limit, you know, and it was, mm -hmm. it was south of a thousand units and uh, south of a hundred million in, in assets under management. But uh, I think that's also very important to the, to the scaling as well. And I just want to tag on to Brian's idea, which is yep. if you see somebody who's done a billion dollars of assets under management and get introduced to them, see how you can help them. Maybe get involved in a very tiny piece of their large deal and see how they do it, right? If you want to, for, for example, figure out how to do something um, at, at your mom and pop level, go see how the Walmarts of the world do it, right? Or the Amazons of the world. And so it's the same way. How do they organize? How do they manage their inventory? How do they do their supply chain, et cetera? It's the same way. How do these guys scale? Do they have the same thing, like, you know, train a VA to do the task that you do today by recording yourself in a Loom video so that no matter who it is, you can keep hiring VAs to do that. And yep. then you free your time. So free your time, free your time so that you only do the highest level tasks mm -hmm. and you outsource everything else that you don't want to do or which is like a, you know, $20 per hour kind of task so that you can do yep. the $500 and $1,000 per hour tasks. Love it. Wow. 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 I love that. I love that. I love that. And I feel like that's something that I've heard of. I've been hearing a lot of is, you know, surrounding yourself with the right people, mm -hmm. getting in the proximity, you know, of the people that are, are doing the deals, making sure, you know, they're, they're doing big things, things like that. Just being in that proximity really pulls you forward. And I love that. I really love that. Um, second thing I think you mentioned was um, scaling and having systems in place. I think that's really, really interesting. I just keep hearing that always set up systems, set up systems, keep it going, keep it going. Um, and then moving on from there, I know you mentioned, you know, bottlenecks, reaching bottlenecks. So how do you recognize when you're in your own way? Because I mean, I'm me. And how do I get that outside looking in to know that, you know, I'm in my own way. I need to get out. I need to hire some VAs. I need to do these, get some other people around me. One of the things to recognize is that no one can do anything as perfectly as you syndrome, right? Maybe you accept it at 80% efficiency. 80% perfect is okay. Let a VA do it or let an assistant do it so that it frees up your time, right? And have an outsider who you respect in the business come and assess what you do. So record what you do on a day-to-day -day level for a whole week operating just the way you are right now. Right there, you will yourself be able to say, what's inefficient about my time for an entire week? From that, distinguish the things you love to do and the things that get you the most impact. And then say, how does that translate to me serving my customers, who are my residents and my investors, as an example? And then everything else that you've been doing, figure out how you can outsource it. 
mm-hmm. by again loom videos so yep. writing out the process etc cetera, etc cetera. train somebody else to yep. do it so a newbie for example bringing in as i'm a lead syndicator if a newbie wants to do certain aspects of asset management i say okay here's your criteria write out the scope of work go get three bids come back let's pick a vendor but i outsource that to my newbie uh syndicator so they learn how to do that and it frees up my time so that's an example yeah and i'll tell you if you don't have your systems right if you don't have your procedures right you will feel pain okay there is friction involved okay and it will it will stop growth you know so if you feel like you're spinning your wheels Okay, you probably have a system problem, right? If you feel like you're banging your head into a brick wall, you probably have a systems problem, you know? And that's that's kind of what we realized. And that kind of spurred me leaving the company that I was with was, you know, we had a systems problem and, um, you know, it wasn't getting fixed. It wasn't getting addressed, you know, and it was, it kept us from scaling. But, you know, in, in a lot of times, I, th- I think if you really sit back and think about it, if you're spinning your wheels, you know, running into a brick wall, you have a systems problem. I love that. Okay. Or you're burning the candle on both ends and you're working, mm -hmm. you know, 12, 14, 16 hour days. It's like, you've got to outsource some of it. Many of those are probably five, 10, $20 an hour tasks that need to be outsourced. And and I love what, what, what Sandia said about, you know, recording yourself doing certain things on Loom, you know, or I, I actually use Zoom. I hit my share screen record on Zoom so I don't have to use a second app. But uh, I do that for, for my virtual assistants, you know, and I think that the first thing that I outsourced was podcast editing because it took me forever, you know, and mm-hmm. I was pulling my hair out and it wasn't very good. And, you know, it was one of those things where I realized I was banging my head against a wall and it's like I need to outsource this. And I taught a couple of people how to how to edit podcasts, and it was exactly that. It was me recording myself doing it. And now, if you know, I, yeah. I, I hope my podcast editor stays with me for you know as forever as long as I own the podcast. But you know, every time I switch podcast editors, I didn't have to you know re- redo the training materials. Like here's the video I recorded six months ago. It's still good. So. <laughs> Anyway, we are about out of time. So one question for each of you to close things up. Sandia, you go first. How do listeners learn more about you? You can visit my website, engineered-capital.com. Mm-hmm. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Or of course, you can get to me through Brian. Woo-hoo. Brian right. Briscoe, the host. Absolutely. And Brian, other Brian, how can <laughs> listeners learn more about you? Sure. Uh, you can contact me at brobles at mucapitalinvestments.com to send me an email. I'd love to get to know more about you. Awesome. And hey, thanks to both of you for coming on the show today. Great, great, great conversation. I love it. I think this is going to be like an instant classic. So I uh, appreciate you for your time. Thank, Thank you, you so much. It's been an honor. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast by the Tribe of Titans. If you're still listening, you obviously liked it. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already. And then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, which incidentally has a ton of video content that you'll also enjoy and learn from. Now, if you're interested in being on the show, go to our website, diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com and fill out the questionnaire on the website. And for more educational content and for more information about our educational community, check us out at thetribeoftitans.info.